James is super bold. Has that been your experience as we've been working through that he's just really blunt? He can be very extreme at times in the way he frames things, and the way he says things. He's very bold. And he is concerned with Christians living like real Christians. So he has a lot to say with what the Christian life should look like. And though even though we're Christians, we are still sinners who are struggling with sin. That we have real struggles. That like Israel, we are prone to wander away from God rather than prone to wander toward Him. We see it in chapter 1. James makes it clear that we are prone to be simply hearers of the Word rather than doers also. In chapter 2, he shows us that in our treatment of people, we are prone to partiality rather than impartiality. In chapter 3, he shows us with our mouths and our speech and our tongues, we are prone to blaspheme and tear down rather to worship well and to build up. We are sinners who actively struggle with sin. James has been very clear about that. Yet even in the midst of all of these proclivities towards sin, we have this Savior that has showed us a better way. That has given us His Spirit to guide our lives. That as Christ followers, we are showered with grace and goodness and forgiveness and mercy to help us through this struggle with sin. Freeing us from bondage to sin. Making this God-honoring life really truly possible for us. Yet in this life, we are sinners and we are struggling with sin. Now, chances are, if you've ever watched cartoons as a kid, I'm willing to bet you are, almost every cartoon series has had a time when one of the major characters has, stru- has had some sort of inner conflict, some fork-in-the-road sort of moment. And what is the way, that, like the cartoon staple, the way that the, the cartoonist will illustrate this inner sort of moral or ethical dilemma where this, this character is struggling with doing right or wrong, good or evil. What will they do? A lot of times they'll illustrate a little devil on one shoulder and a little angel on the other shoulder, right? And the devil is like whispering bad advice and the the angel is whispering good advice. We have an example here. This is Homer Simpson. I'm sure you're all familiar with Homer Simpson and just that. I'm pretty sure like the story arc of that episode, like most cartoons that will, will illustrate this sort of scenario, Homer knows what's right, right? He's got this quizzical look on his face. He doesn't quite sure know what to do. Uh, He knows what's right, yet the wrong thing is just sort of deceptively appealing. And he's got these two influences. And the little devil and the little angel are fighting against each other, trying to inform Homer's decision. He is wrestling with what to do. There's this internal sort of conflict happening. And it's just a very light a very lighthearted, comical way of illustrating uh, inner conflict that we all deal with all the time. Um, now in reality, this is just a really inadequate way of illustrating the spiritual b- battles, the spiritual warfare happening within you. But James is very clear. He continues his blunt instruction to us, starting in chapter 4, claiming that there is a real spiritual battle. There is a spiritual war happening within his readers, within you and me. And the first thing we read in James chapter 4 that that he's going to show us is that in this life, your passions are at war within you. Verses 1 to 3. Chapter 4, 1 to 3. 
What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, following James' discussion on on the fruit of true wisdom at the end of chapter 3, you'll remember that from last week, uh, he brings this up, asks this question in chapter 4, addressing disunity within this body of believers. He says, what is causing quarrels and fights among you? Just in asking the question, he's recognizing the fact that these Christians who are supposed to be living this Christian life are, are fighting with each other. There's quarreling going on. And you'll remember at the end of James chapter 3, he says in verse 14 uh, to 16, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual. It is demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So this false wisdom... This selfish ambition, this disorder, these vile practices that he is, is, is addressing at the end of chapter 3, he starts off chapter 4 by saying, these things have taken root in your community. And there are quarrels and there are fights happening. And right from the outset of chapter 4, James is very quick to get uh, right at the heart of what is causing all of these quarrels and all of these fights. And what does he say? He says there is a very real war going on inside of us. And James frames this great struggle by saying, by using this extreme war imagery, saying that our passions are at war within us. That there's this battleground, it's internal, this fighting that's intense, and it is our passions that are at war within us. And by passions, James is referring to these sinful self-indulgent pleasures which prompt us on to a life of sin, to disobedience. Actually, the word hedonism uh, is derived from the root of this word that we translate as passions. Hedonism, of course, is the pursuit of pleasure. It's the pursuit of sensual self-indulgence. So what James is saying is that there are these hedonistic, these sinful, these pleasure-seeking passions that are at war Within us, it's a serious struggle. Peter affirms everything that James is saying. First Peter two eleven, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. That there are these passions that are waging war within us, that are fighting to lead us into sin. So while the we have these con cartoon characters, and it's a very generic sort of picture of this internal struggle. There is a very real war of passions that we really deal with. Have you ever had one of those moments? One of those Homer types of moments, obviously at a much more intense level. When you just perceive this inner war with your sinful passions. I've had many As I was praying through the text, one uh, stood out clearly. Uh, When I was in college, I would come home on summers and work a summer job at the post office. I worked in a warehouse. I loaded, unloaded trucks. I would move boxes around. 
It was actually a really great summer job. And there was this one summer when there were three or four other guys uh, my age that worked there. And I got to be pretty good friends with them at work. I would hang out with them at work, eat lunch with them, uh, stuff like that. One of those friends was this guy named Miguel. And uh, these guys were worldly. They were not believers. They were not interested in living a Christian lifestyle. I considered myself a Christian at the time, uh, but they were worldly dudes, and I was hanging out with them every day. Um, And I just remember the entire summer long, this struggle, because I would daily take part in these conversations with them that were not edifying, that were full of swearing and cursing and coarse talk. And I just remember feeling this pull, this attraction. I wanted to be accepted by these guys. I was attracted to certain aspects of their lifestyles. And I am telling you, there was a war going on inside me all summer long. Well, I fought that war. And we um, also had this guy named Jeff that worked at the post office with us. He was a forklift driver. He was uh, kind of a quiet guy. He, would, uh, he was a Christian. Worked hard. Everybody liked him. He would witness often. He was a great Christian presence uh, at the post office. Well, there's this one day we're all sitting at lunch. I'm sitting at lunch with my buddies. And uh, the conversation was not very good, and I was taking part in it. And I remember my friend Miguel turned to the group, and conversation somehow turned to Jeff. And he said, you know, say what you want about Jeff. I really respect him. He's the first guy I've ever known that I really consider to be a Christian. And he said this because something about Jeff's life was consistent with what Miguel thought a Christian's life should look like. And I remember when he said that, it was like a knife going through my heart. I mean, I really, really struggled. The whole summer I had major guilt and conviction because I had this war of passions going on within me. I was actively sinning, following those passions down roads that were not good for me. And it just absolutely destroyed my testimony at work. Miguel's comments alluded, uh, illuminated in my mind, in my thinking, the truth that I had been giving in to these daily sinful passions. It wasn't a one-time thing, but I was living and embracing this worldly lifestyle. These are the types of wars that rage within us. We have passions raging in war within us. So soak in this reality as you sit here even now in church. Even as you sit here, there are passions warring within you seeking to pull you in directions that will bring you far from God, that will destroy your testimony as a a faithful and effective witness to Christ. Maybe there are times in your lives, be introspective. Now is the time to be looking within, to think, is this you? Are these things being manifested? Are you following these passions down different roads in your life? Maybe you're harboring major resentment against someone, against a neighbor or a coworker, and it is just eating away at you, and you are fighting that battle. Maybe you're lusting after someone in your mind that you should not be lusting after. Maybe you're in a romantic relationship and you're, you're, you're faced with this dilemma, do I, do I pursue the biblical standard of purity or do, I just, or do I just give in to these passions of my flesh? 
Maybe you're in college, you're in school, and there are these temptations to, to cheat on exams just to get better grades as opposed to adhering to a code of ethics that honors God. Maybe you're at a workplace where there are temptations to fudge the numbers or do things dishonestly to make more money, to advance your career, rather than, than love the Lord with the way you're working. Maybe there are annoying people in your life and, and you're treating them like dirt rather than interacting with them in a loving way. Our passions are at war within us. And the way we respond to those passions really truly matters. And verse 2 expands on the nature of these sinful passions. You see, James is writing to a believing audience, a specific audience with all this stuff going on. It says that the people desire, and what do they do? Are they, are they handling, are they responding to these desires in a godly way? No, it says they desire and they don't have, so they murder. Like David with Uriah. It says they covet, which is a sin in the first place, and they can't attain, so... What's happening? They're fighting and they're quarreling. Even their prayers are stained by these sinful worldly desires. Either they're not asking God as they should, or they're asking with these wrong, tainted motives uh, just so that they can further feed their pleasures. Our sinful passions are at war within us, and like these first century Christians, uh, we are at war with them. If we're honest with ourselves, we know it to be true, and rather than wipe it, brush it under the rug or ignore it altogether, James is just willing to talk about it. So while James makes it clear that this war of passions is raging within us, um, he also makes it clear that within this war of passions, there's just no room for compromising your allegiances to God. Verses 4 to 6. Verses 4 to 6. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He earns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So having analyzed the way that this audience has responded to this inner war of passions, James just levels them with this accusation. You adulterous people. You are adulterers. You are unfaithful to God. Now it's important to note that James is not just saying that their sin is strictly a moral issue, right? This isn't just moral teaching. He's not saying... Check off these lists of moral actions and attitudes and, and you're good. He's saying that their sin is something far greater, far uh, more, more meaningful. It is adultery. It is offensive. It is grieving the heart of God. And here's the thing. All throughout the Bible, God's people have been adulterers, right? Adam sins in the garden. People are so sinful, God sends the flood. Uh, God's people Israel sin on their way out of Egypt. They sin throughout the conquest of the promised land. One of the main emphases of, of the prophets, both major and minor, is the sin, the covenant unfaithfulness of the people. We see major sin within the church of the New Testament that throughout the Bible, God's people have been spiritual adulterers. And there's just no greater illustration of this in the Bible than in the book of Hosea. 
And it's just going to give us a great picture of what our sin truly is. So Hosea provides just this shocking commentary on the seriousness of our sin and our unfaithfulness and how intensely it offends God. Uh, If you're not familiar with the book of Hosea, God calls His prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer, to have children with her. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now why would he ask uh, his prophet, this faithful prophet Hosea, to marry a prostitute and have a family of these kids in this marriage coming out of uh, a mar- being married to a prostitute. Well, Hosea's faithfulness uh, to, the, to, to his wife Gomer symbolizes God's faithfulness uh, to uh, his, his unfaithful people. And Gomer's whoredom toward God represents uh, the people's uh, just unradical unfaithfulness toward God. So what happens? Uh, the people are, are, are worshiping other gods. They're straying away. And, and God gives them this picture of what it is like. What their sin is like in their relationship to the Lord. Well, Hosea marries Gomer. They have three kids together. She is eventually uh, continues to be a prostitute to another, even though she's married to this faithful man. Um, there is extreme and shocking language referring to the egregiousness of her unfaithfulness throughout the book of Hosea. Uh, eventually, she is at a position where she is being auctioned off as a slave and a prostitute to someone else. And then something just amazing happens. Hosea redeems Gomer. It is this amazing thing. He buys her back out of slavery after she has again left him to prostitute herself. And we start to see a picture of the heart of God toward His unfaithful people. That even though God will execute judgment and justice towards His people, which is very clear throughout the book of Hosea, He plans to redeem them and show them grace. That Gomer's unfaithful. She's being auctioned off as a slave and as a prostitute. Hosea buys her out, not for the purpose of then treating her as a slave, but for the purpose of receiving her as his beloved. It's this just beautiful picture of God's heart towards his people. But we also see in the book of Hosea this commentary on how despicable it is when we follow our passions into a life of sin. Here's the thing. All throughout the Bible, God's people have been adulterers. Um, people have broken covenant with God. Uh, we've rebelled. They've strayed away with their minds and with their lives. Uh, worshiping other things all the time. Uh, and here's the thing. You and I are just no different. We are also adulterers. We are great, great sinners. We sin, we wander away, we pursue things that God hates, we follow our passions all the time. And hopefully, as we mature in Christ, faithfulness to Him will continue to grow deeper. But here's something that we just really need to grapple with this morning. If you're having trysts with the world, if you're carrying on a love affair with sin, When God desires exclusivity from you, 
If you are following your sinful passions, you are committing adultery against God. And your sinful habits and your sinful lifestyles might not seem like such a big deal sometimes, but to give you a picture of what your disobedience is like in your relationship to God, it is like a wife being married to a faithful and a loving husband and she prostitutes herself out into a life of whoredom. James is applying this image of adultery, spiritual adultery, to the church. To you and to me. So God loves us. He wants a relationship of faithfulness with us. And our sin, which disrupts that relationship, is a very, very big deal. And James will take his thoughts on a sinful lifestyle within Christians and within the Christian community even a step further. Uh, Verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So let's talk about friendship with the world. Um, When James mentions the world, he's using that particular word, that term, to represent just the sinful and the fallen influences and realities all around us. Uh, 1 John 5, uh, verse 19 says, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That God in His infinite sovereignty and wisdom has allowed Satan to have an influence in the world. And when he mentions world, he's talking about those sinful and fallen realities that we deal with. So he says that friendship with the world is is bringing about enmity with God. Now in our culture, we use this term friendship kind of loosely. I know I do. I'm pretty loosey-goosey with the way I use the word friend. A lot of times I'll meet someone and literally two minutes later if I'm introducing them to someone else I'll say, oh, here's my friend. And really, they're not my friend. Uh, they may become my friend, but they're not my friend yet. I just met them. There's no relationship there. There's really not a friendship there. Um, but this term in the first century context has just a much weightier meaning than that. Uh, what we're talking about here is a love for the world. When he says friendship with the world, he means an affection for the world, companionship with the world. He's not talking about times when you incidentally uh, you know, misstep or an accidental mess up or a, a you know, one-time sin or something like that. But as John MacArthur describes it, he's talking about a settled affection for the world. Strong attraction, an intimate relationship with the world. And there are profound implications to cultivating that sort of relationship with the world, with these sinful impulses, with your passions. The first of which is this, enmity with God. Now the word enmity means hatred toward, hostility with. Every, almost every time that word's used in the New Testament, it's used to describe personal enemies And James will elaborate further. He says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now these are just blunt truths that James is giving us. That if you befriend the world, you are taking a position of hatred toward God. 
that if you befriend the world, you are walking across the battlefield, crossing the line of fire, and positioning yourself as his enemy. Serious stuff. Now, I was, uh, I was recently reading about the life of Benedict Arnold. Um, I don't know much about him. I'm far from being an expert. I was just doing some biographical reading. It was really interesting. Um, I was really struck. He was a pretty remarkable soldier for the colonies at the very beginning. Uh, George Washington really trusted him. Uh, he recommended him to uh, Continental Congress. He uh, commissioned him as a colonel. Um, but after some questionable activity, he was actually court-martialed, and he began bargaining with the British. And uh, one of the things that really just strikes me, uh, that story just really strikes me, is that when Arnold began bargaining with the British, he was immediately positioning himself as an enemy of the colonies. Right? I mean, he couldn't truly be a friend of both camps. He couldn't truly... Uh, be a friend of the colony to say, you know what, I want to operate for your best interest. I, I love you. You're my friend. I care about you. I, I'm with you. And then at the same time, say, I want to be your friend to the British. I, I want to operate for your best interest. I am with you. I, I want this relationship with you. I want to be a friend to you. He couldn't be a friend truly to both camps. And befriending the British, he automatically made himself an enemy of the colonies. Now, either you are a friend of God or you are a friend of the world. And if you are an enemy, uh, or if you are a friend of the world, then you are an enemy of God. It's super extreme language, it's an extreme message. So it will always be impossible to carry on a love affair with your passions, to carry on a love affair with sin, and still honor God. Uh, John absolutely affirms everything that James is saying. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. You can't be friends both with the world and with God. It's blunt honesty from James. He's speaking in absolutes here. For a reason. It's a truth we desperately, desperately need to hear. So the next implication, if all of that is true, there is just no biblical grounds for casually following Christ. If being a friend of God means forsaking friendship with the world, you just can't live in the middle. There's no grounds biblically for being a casual follower of Christ. That relationship with Jesus is not meant to be casual. It's not meant to be an afterthought, not meant to be pushed to the margins of your life. James is letting us know there's no gray area. There's no sitting on the fence. There's no being lukewarm. Either you're a friend of God or you're a friend of the world. If you want more, uh, more biblical grounds for that, read Luke chapter 9, verse 57 to 62. I'm not going to read it now. Study it at home. It's an awesome text. There's a call to follow Jesus there. It's one of the major themes throughout the Gospel of Luke. The point of the whole passage uh, is, is emphasizing the priority of Christ over and against all other things. That following Christ is a radical thing. Following Christ can be a costly thing. That Christ is to be prioritized above all other things because Christ alone is worthy of it. 
following Christ is anything but casual. And that can be a really difficult message for us as Americans to hear because in America, casual Christianity is oftentimes the norm. And I know it's a tough message to hear because it was super difficult for me for a long time. Uh, If I could just pick three words to describe my relationship with the Lord for the first 24 years of my life, it would be apathy, indifference, casual. My commitment, and I use that with quotations, was just such a peripheral thing while I was holding tightly to this relationship with the world. James would have looked at my life and said, that guy's got a heart that is at odds with God, that is an enemy of God. And Miguel, my friend from from the post office, his just shocking comments that day, uh, that lunch break, just an eye-opening indictment of my friendship with the world. And maybe that's you today. So whom you befriend is a big deal to God. We know this. Verse 5 tells us that God yearns jealously over the spirit He has caused to dwell in you. God has given you a spirit to worship Him, and He has this righteous jealousy over it when that spirit is seeking after the things of the world. So the question is, where do you land? Who are you loving? To whom are you being faithful? Are you a friend of the world or a friend of God? Because you just can't be both. And if your honest answer to that question is, well, I'm somewhere in the middle, and I think that's fine, according to James, you're, you're kidding yourself. And he encourages us to pursue friendship. And please take to heart that in all of this, God is gracious to us. Verse 6 tells us, But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Like in Hosea, where there was so much sin, there's a positive note because of the Lord. That God is faithful to dispense grace to those who approach Him with humility. Um, And while we make ourselves His enemy through our sin, He is powerful and faithful to make us His friends by grace. So turn to Him. Become His friend. So this war of passions wages within us. And we know within this war, there's just no room for compromising our allegiance to God. The question is, how do we live these obedient lives? How do we stay faithful to God? The answer is that in this war, we turn to Him. Verses 7 to 10. James chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. So there is just a lot of truth packed into those few verses. Honestly, you could probably preach ten, ten sermons on each verse, but what I'm going to do is give you five commands, five imperatives from the text that will lead to your faithfulness. Five commands from the text that will lead to your faithfulness. The first one, submit to God. Verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. 
And to submit to God means to align yourself under His authority. Our inclination a lot of times is to creep out from under His authority and to live as if we're you know, responsible to ourselves alone. And here he's saying, put yourself back under His authority. Accept the Lordship of Christ in your life. Obediently follow Him. And we know submission takes intentionality. It takes perseverance because there are going to be moments throughout the day when you don't feel like being submissive to Jesus. You're going to feel like following those passions down some sinful road. And it also takes genuine heart change. So if you're struggling with your fleshly passions, if you're trying to manipulate God with your prayers like these first century Christians, if you're habitually tempering your obedience to God with just kind of doing your own thing, the appropriate thing for you to do is to submit to Him. Resign your will to His. Align your heart with His by His grace and receive Jesus as your Lord. Now for some, this may mean receiving Christ as your Savior for the first time. And if you sit here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, by all means, recognize yourself as a sinner. Confess that sin. Understand that He sacrificed Himself on your behalf, paying the penalty for your sins, so that by grace you might receive forgiveness be freed from that sin, and live to enjoy Christ forever. Since we battle sin, we cling to Christ. Here's the second command from the text that will lead to your faithfulness. Resist the devil. Verse 7, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Now while we have these internal passions and these internal struggles, we also have an external enemy. Um, Scripture is very clear. Satan and his demons are real. They're actively working against us. Um, scripture says he's a murderer. He's a father of lies. John chapter 8, 40, verse 44 says, He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. He lies to us. He is false. He will offer you a counterfeit truth which looks good but will lead you down a road that you don't want to go down. A road which grieves God when you follow Him. And what is He doing? He is actively seeking to destroy you. 1 Peter 5.8 Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. So we are told to resist. And remember... Um, the devil, the enemy, has no power over the Christian except to seduce you and to tempt you. And giving in to your passions means yielding to the devil. Now when your sinful passions and these evil influences are fighting to lead you astray, we're to submit to God and to resist the devil, just like Jesus did in the wilderness. Of course, submitting to God is first imperative for resisting. Because we can never resist the temptation to sin in our own strength, but we submit to God and trust Him to give us the fortitude. And if you do this, Scripture tells us the devil will flee. So if we, since we battle sin, we cling to Christ. Here's the third thing, the third command that will lead to your faithfulness. Verse 8, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Now James is using this really awesome spatial imagery. He says if you're far, draw near. 
We're familiar with this imagery, right? Paul uses it when he is explaining justification to us. Paul, or Ephesians chapter 2.13 But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And here, James is using uh, that term with a specific nuance of returning to God, drawing near to Him again, that if you are wandering off, if you are following these passions into sin, return to Him. Draw near again. And what happens when we draw near? God promises to draw near to us. It's this really special, reciprocal promise. And keep in mind, this is not directed toward unbelievers. It's about Christians rededicating themselves to a life of faithfulness to God, and in return, God restoring them with closeness to Him. Draw near to God. If your passions are influencing your life, draw near to Jesus. Return to Him. Since we battle sin, we cling to Christ. Here's the fourth command that will lead to your faithfulness. Repent. Verses 8 and 9. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now again, James isn't holding punches. He calls them sinners. He calls them double-minded in all of this. And he uses this, uh, this imagery of washing, cleaning your hands, and purifying your hearts. And it's important to know that James is pulling these images and much of his theology right out of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the priest's purity was of utmost importance. As they came into the presence of God on behalf of, their, of the people, and as they ministered, they would clean themselves physically. They were also very careful to, uh, to do sacrifices, to atone for their inner sins, to make sure that they were pure before God as they did their work. Now when James is saying, wash your hands, clean your hands, and then purify your hearts, He is calling for an internal and also an external purity before God. That our hearts, but also our lives, that our deeds, but also our dispositions might be clean in His presence. So it's appropriate for us to confess, to take these measures to be clean before Him, to acknowledge our inner sins, to do things, to to intentionally try to live in a certain way that is God-honoring. James also uses this language. It's unbelievable. He says, be wretched, mourn, weep. It's really intense language, but when you understand your sin as adultery, and you really understand the weightiness of what your sin is and what it means to God, it is so completely appropriate to grieve over your sin, to mourn it, to feel horrible about it, to be heartbroken over your sin. And we see that true repentance includes this heartfelt sorrow over grieving the heart of God with our sin. So we're called to face our sin, to mourn it, to repent it to God. He says, let your laughter be turned to, uh, to joy, right? or your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom, that this light-hearted attitude about our sin be turned to a, to, to a serious one, that we understand the weightiness of our sin. So we bat, since we battle sin, we cling to Christ, repentance. And here's the fifth uh, command that will lead to your faithfulness. Humble yourself. Verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord, and He will exalt you. 
Humbling yourself, of course, before God means confessing to Him how lost you are without Him, how desperately you need Him. Coming before Him with this soft heart of meekness as opposed to this hard heart of pride. And He promises if you do this, Christian, He will exalt you. He will help you in all these things. He will lift you up. So James commands us to submit to God, to resist the devil, to draw near to God, uh, to repent, and to humble ourselves. And of course, all of this is only possible by grace. James has been very clear all throughout the text so far that we just can't do this stuff. We can't live this Christian life in our own strength. We need God's grace to empower us. But since we battle sin, we cling to Christ. Now, I wanted to just leave you with a few encouraging truths because we've talked a lot about sin, uh, what it is, how we struggle with it, how we battle with it. And uh, so please just know that if you have received Jesus as your Savior, if you have placed saving faith in Jesus Christ, that you are no longer a slave to sin. That Jesus has conquered Satan's sin and death and you have been freed And the awesome thing is is that in all of this, in all of these endeavors, in all of our attempts to lead a Christian life, God is our great strength in all these things. We're not meant to fight this great war of the soul on our own. We have a champion, Jesus Christ, who fights for us. And I also just wanted to leave with you 1 John 4.4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So the last thing we're to do is to listen to this text and be discouraged and think we can never live up to this ideal. In all truth, um, knowing Jesus and having His Holy Spirit in your, in your life and dwell you is not anything like Homer Simpson having a little angel on his shoulder just kind of whispering good advice. Um, the power and uh, just... I don't even know how to describe the amazing, uh, the amazing reality of having God in your life. But the power of Him uh, and, and what He means to a Christian is far beyond anything that could ever be captured in a cartoon. And I just wanted to encourage you. Um, he, is, he is yours. His Spirit is in you. Uh, turn to Him at all costs if you are struggling with your passions. So know that in Jesus you have victory over your passions. And when the war of passions is at its worst, and the fighting with sin is at its fiercest, remember Jesus, find strength in Him, submit to Him, draw near to Him, repent to Him, and claim victory in Him. And since we battle uh, sin, we cling to Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, we just thank You for Your Word. and Lord, we do know, each and every one of us, that we are sinners. Um, But Father, we just thank You for Your grace to us. We thank You, Father, uh, that You forgive us. And You make a life with You possible. And Father, I just pray that You will continually... Uh, be moving in each of our lives, each of our hearts, to help us to be more faithful to Jesus. And Lord, I just pray over everyone here in those moments of weakness when 
temptation to seek after the world and to love the things of the world and to follow passions and to sin are, are very real and they're very there. Father, I just pray that you will be stronger, that you will show us sin for what it is and help us, Lord, to be faithful to you. We love you dearly. We thank you in Christ's name.